Father, we approach such a great God, incomparable, the one who is above creation, above time and space and matter and energy. We worship you, the eternal living God, and we worship you through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for your honor and for your glory to be manifest and displayed. You are glorious. You have all honor and all credit. But we pray that it may be displayed and manifest on earth. We pray for the churches that gather to worship you, that you enable the word to be preached, souls to come to the knowledge of the truth, people to be converted, saints to be edified, sanctified, exhorted, encouraged, rebuked according to the need. Father, we pray for your kingdom and for your will to be done on earth as it is done in heaven. And we commit ourselves to you as well as we pray that you help us opening the scriptures, reading them, and then helping the one who tries to explain them. May your Holy Spirit cover my many mistakes and my failures and my negligence and my errors. Father, may you cover for the faults of your servants and your word may be useful to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 10, 25 through 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And behold, a lawyer or a scribe stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, and leaving him half dead. Now, by a chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bowed, him, bowed up his wounds, pouring on, pouring on oil and wine. And then he sat him on his own animal and brought him to, the, to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, keeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. May God bless the reading of his word. Last weekend I was in New York taking my wife to see a Knicks game against the Heat. It was hard for me to root against my old love of the Knicks in favor of the Heat, because my new love, my wife, is a Heat fan. So that was challenging, but I managed it. 
But anyways, I had three opportunities to do good works. First time, coming out of the subway station, a homeless man, I'm kind of lost, not knowing exactly if I'm going up or down, and he points me in the right direction to my hotel, and he's smelling like weed, and all in raggedy clothes, and he says, hey, dude, do you have something for me? Can you give me something? And as usual, I didn't have any cash with me. I had to get some cash later, but I couldn't help him. Then, the second time, there was the street performers, and I already had cash with me. And one of them managed to manipulate me into guilt-giving. I couldn't believe I did that. But he managed to get five bucks out of me. And I felt terrible because he deceived me and manipulated me. And then on two more occasions, I saw people lying on the road, and I just went by and didn't do anything. So as I faced this parable... I realize how I flunked the test of good works. I also realize that the marrow of the gospel is, for by grace you have been saved, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one should boast. So I realize that my salvation is not at stake because I failed so miserably in New York City on these three occasions or four that I had the opportunity to do good works. But at the same time, I was reminded of James 2 that says, faith without works is dead. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you mine by works. And there we go again to those tensions of the Bible. Pastor Freddie and Pastor Darren were talking in Sunday school when they were talking to those who serve in Sunday ministries about this vision of our church regarding commitment, being committed for the gospel, for discipleship, for evangelism, for service to one another. And as we consider this issue of commitment, this parable of the Good Samaritan came to mind because there are some lessons we can learn from this parable. The scribe asked that transcendent question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You realize that Jesus was asked that question by another scribe, even by the rich young ruler. It seems to be something that bothered the scribes and the Pharisees, and it should bother every one of us, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What is the reason for my existence? Is this life everything there is to it? When you guys are young, you don't realize it, but as you get older, you'll understand how short life is. You can see 10 years in the future, and it seems like an eternity. You see 60 and to the back, and it seems like nothing. My wife is my witness that when I'm walking through New York, I can remember places that I walked with my mother when I was four years old, three years old. The, 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 the station, the, the subway station where we stopped, the parks where I walked with my mother, things that I'm supposed not to remember, but I remember them. And it looks like the other day, but they are 55, 56 years in the past. Because life is short, and we need, to have some, we need to find some meaning to this short, fleeting, irrelevant life. 
We live in, our, in the center of our universe. But when you see the masses, you realize, yeah, they too are the center of their own universes. We're nothing. What is the purpose of being here? Neil deGrasse Tyson, I don't know why I keep listening to him, but he's a very interesting fellow, very smart. And he says, oh, for me, death? Nothing. When my atoms will be released and the energy will go back to the universe. And I just look at him because he doesn't believe in God or eternal life. He says, really? You really think that that's why you're alive, to wait until death releases your energy to the universe? No kidding. Deep down, God has placed eternity in the heart of people. Deep down, we have this sense of there's something more. This religious sense that has been with mankind from the get-go, from the beginning. It doesn't matter the culture, because we need to find meaning. And Jesus' answer to the scribe is the law. <laughs> say, what? Jesus, what shall I do to, it, to inherit and to have eternal life? He should have said, believe in me and you shall have everlasting life. But he didn't. He said, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the scribe was an expert in the law. And the scribe knew that God's law prescribed eternal life. I'm not making that up. Leviticus 18.5, which the scribe knew well. This is what it says. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. And if a person does them, he shall live by them. So do you want to have eternal life? Here's the answer. Keep the law. Every commandment. Keep it perfectly, without fail, and you will have eternal life. And if you don't get that, you don't understand the gospel. There's a lot of people I know that preach wealth and prosperity and having a good life and having a good marriage and making money and God prospering you. And then come to Jesus if you want to know him. But that's not the gospel. To really understand the gospel, at least in the New Testament way, you have to understand that the way to have eternal life is keeping the law. And you say, dude, what happened to you? You're going crazy? You're becoming a heretic? No, I'm not. Paul says that in Romans 3. That is a thesis of Romans 3. That God displays his righteousness through the law. Now he says, apart from the law, God also has displayed his righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. And unless we understand that, we have not grasped, grasped the gospel. Jesus had to obey perfectly the law all of his life. Theologians call it active obedience. And then he had to passively, on the cross, receive all the penalty the law prescribed for those who broke it. And on that basis, those who believe in him are transferred, and we sang about it in the hymn, from the umbrella of Adam, and in Adam all sinned, to the umbrella of Jesus in Jesus, all will be justified, implied those who believe. 
So yes, it is by grace, through faith, but through someone who kept the law in its entirety in our place. So Jesus said to the scribe, the right thing. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Keep the law. What do you read? And the scribe answered correctly. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your mind and with all your soul. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus told him, you answered correctly. Go do it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Now we're talking. People say, I, I don't steal and I don't kill. Therefore, I keep the law. Really? This is not... No. This, maybe I bought this one. But anyways, sometimes I use Vanessa Vasquez. You're sitting there. Pens. Those pens are not for me to use. Those pens are for Vanessa Vasquez at law to give to people that they know there's a lawyer in town that that's, has that firm. But I use them at home, so you stole it, and I'm your accomplice. Because, you know, <laughs> that's, and I use Komatsu too. Yes. So I'm a thief, and I don't love God with all my heart and all my mind and all my soul, nor, nor do you. Neighbor as myself, and I'm walking down the street, and I see these people on the floor with a little dog, and I just keep going to watch Lion King or to watch my game, completely oblivious to their grief. Oh, that's because they are drug addicts. Oh, really? And why am I not a drug addict from, from Washington Heights where I grew up, where I started to grow up at least? If I'm not a drug addict, it's not because I'm any better, or you, or the matter. But we don't care about our neighbor because we are just centered on ourselves. And Jesus made a point of what he had previously said, or maybe later, I don't know exactly the chronology of this passage, if it's before or after the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus says, I didn't come to invalidate the law of the prophets. If you hear somebody telling you, oh, Jesus came to invalidate the law, don't worry about the law, run, run for your life. Because Jesus said, I didn't come to invalidate or abrogate the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill it. So Jesus, in true, true statement about what he said, he told the guy, <laughs> go to the law. Now I love it that in this passage, when you know the rest of the interactions Jesus had with people with the same question, you can tell that he didn't deal with this person as he dealt with another scribe who asked him the same question. And when Jesus said, and it was actually a group of Pharisees who came to him to confront him. And when Jesus gave them that answer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. There was one of the scribes who stood out of the crowd and said, Rabbi, you have answered correctly. That loving God with all our minds and our souls and our hearts and our strengths. And loving our neighbor as ourselves is greater than all sacrifices and holocausts and, and offerings that we may bring. Rabbi, you said this right. You know what Jesus told him? You're not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus' tone was completely different when he saw the heart of that rabbi 
saying, you got it, Jesus, that is right. This deal is about loving God. And may I say that even though none of us loves God as he ought to be loved, this business is about loving God. Paul said, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let that person be accursed, anathema. Christianity is not going through the motions. Christianity, and you've heard me say it before and I'll say it again, is not having the right confession of faith. Christianity is not about having the right theology. Christianity, it is being able to say with a psalmist, I love the Lord. Sometimes with tears in prayer, being able to tell God, you know that I don't even come close to it. You know that I fall miserably short. And I am here only because Jesus is covering me. But you also know that I love you. That's what Peter said to Jesus right after his betrayal. Lord, you know all things, but you know that I love you. And that was Jesus' point. Now comes the parable. And the parable is the answer to a dodging question. Because this Pharisee, the one that we're talking about here, is not interested really in knowing the truth. He's interested in trapping Jesus. So he says, okay, and who's my neighbor? Because he was a contentious, sectarian Jew. His problem was a phrase that some Dominicans use. When somebody tries to trick a street smart Dominican, and somebody who is not as street smart tries like to pass a fast one through them, Dominicans would say, so you're coming here with a plastic slice of pizza and sell it to Papa John's? And this guy was coming to sell pizza to Papa John's. He's trying to pass a fast one to the one who knew his heart to the one who knew all things, even the intentions of the heart. And the Jews were sectarian, and they loved only those who loved them, who looked like them, who talked like them, and who were like them. And any resemblance with reality is not coincidence. It is the way the heart is. We love our pact. And Jesus says, if you're a citizen of the kingdom, you make a difference by loving those who are not part of your pack. They look different, talk different, think different, and you still love them and do good to them and pray for them because that is the way your Father in heaven acts. And here's Jesus telling them or telling this scribe the law. Because in the very same book of Leviticus, the law said, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So it, it's exactly in the law in Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. Now let me step out of the sermon for a second and make a political note. We are in this time of approaching presidential elections. 
We are reading in the news all of these issues with the border and all of these things. The book says, you shall love the stranger as yourself. Oh, are you advocating for illegal immigration? I didn't say that. Are you a Democrat? I didn't say that. But I'm not a Republican either, for the record. I'm just saying that the book says, you shall love the stranger as yourself, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Oh, but I've never been in the land of Egypt. Oh, Ephesians 2 says, yes, you were. You were aliens and strangers and foreigners and enemies of God. But because of Christ, you have been drawn near. That is the heart of the gospel. And it's interesting that in this parable, Jesus doesn't give any explanation about the reality of sin. And the reality of sin in the parable is that these robbers and these muggers came and harmed this man who was coming from Jericho to Jerusalem or all the way around from Jerusalem who was in the, in the hill down to Jericho. And Jesus didn't stop to explain the source of evil and there is evil in the world and how can a good God allow for evil to happen? I saw a blasphemous, famous guy saying that if I were in front of God, he's an atheist. He's an atheist. But at this point, he gets angry and says, and if I were to talk to God, I would say, cancer and children? How dare you? Dude, aren't you an atheist? What would happen if you'd see me talking to this wall and talking to... You don't believe in God? Why do you get so angry at him? Because you ain't any atheist. You're just a self-righteous bigot who do not want to face the reality that you will give an account. And Jesus doesn't bother to make an apology about theodicy. Why is there evil in the world if God is supposed to be good and omniscient? There is evil in the world because we live in an accursed world. That God occurs on the account of a man's sin. And why did he occur on account of a man's sin? Because that was the best man ever made and ever created and in the best set of circumstances. Aside from Jesus, of course. And he failed. So if he failed, we too will fail. End of the story. In him we all die. That's the way God thinks of it. So he doesn't make any explanation. He simply says, this guy fell into the hands of robbers. Yes, there's bad people in the world. And there came the Levite, the one who served in the tabernacle. There's a difference between a Levite and a priest. Levites are those who come from the tribe of Levi. Priests were only those who came from the family of Aaron. So you have these four brothers who were sons of Levi, but then you have only one of them who gave bread to those who were priests. So a Levite came by, and he was busy with his service. He saw the man in trouble. He went by. Priests came by. And, and Levites and priests served according to seasons and according to the times that were allotted to them. The priest was also busy with his service of adoration to God. He saw the man. He went by. And Jesus picked on those who were of the highest calling. Because priests and Levites were the ones who ministered to draw people near God. So that's, what he, that's why he chose those. He didn't say a Pharisee came by, a scribe came by. He said, no, no, those who are appointed to serve men 
on behalf of God and talk to God on behalf of men. Those whose lives, whose ministry, whose calling is that of drawing people near God. Men in need, they were busy in their service and in their worship. Because love to God is displayed, according to Scripture, in love to our neighbor. Why love God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself? Why are they together? First John says, because if you say that you love God whom you have not seen, interesting, by the way, that John says that we have not seen God. Oh, no, no, but I had a vision of God. I'm just saying, John says that. If you love God whom you have not seen, how can you say so if you don't love your neighbor whom you see? If you don't love your brother. Remember, brother for a Jew was a, na- a neighbor. Brother in the faith, brother in life, brother in calling, brother at work, a neighbor. One who hangs out with me, one who is near me, one who cohabits or coexists with me in my circumstances and settings. If you say you love God, How can you say so if you don't love your neighbor whom you see? James argues from the similar standard. How can you bless God and at the same time curse your neighbor whom you see? The same fountain offering good water and bad water at the same time? That doesn't jive. And then we find the contrast of the Samaritan. And that's fascinating that Jesus used the Samaritan. Why? Because Samaritans were, were ostracized. They were despised. How many Dominicans do we have here? We don't have a lot, but if you're Dominican, a Samaritan is a Haitian. <laughs> and I'm Dominican, and I'll say it. We are not racist. Oh, Dominicans are so racist against Haitians. No, no, it's because their culture is different. I wonder how would we feel and if, if instead of Haitians, we would have people from Sweden or Switzerland on the other side of the island. I just, just speculation. But that's another story, and I'm going to get in trouble just for saying it. Point is, Samaritans were despised, ostracized, racially profiled. They were unliked. And we do profiling, by the way. We get in a subway station at 11 o'clock, and we see a person dressed in a suit of certain race, Versus one smelling like weed from another race, and we do not react the same. Don't tell me that because I won't believe it. We react differently. Jesus picked on one who was ostracized and despised. And that one draws near. That one sees a neighbor in need and stoops down to help. And it's interesting, he drew near to rescue an enemy. Because the Samaritans were considered as enemies by the Jews. And we are to assume that this man was a Jew because he was coming from Jerusalem to worship down to Jericho. So we can safely assume that in the parable, Jesus has a Jew in mind. And the Samaritan took action. He did something. He gave of his resources and of his time. He 
he put the guy on his horse or beast or donkey or whatever it is he was riding and he spent money and even brought him to the hotel and after pouring oil and 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 healing his wounds and giving him the emt care that that guys like jared do uh then he says okay stay in the hotel here's the money mr hotel person and if you spend more i'll be back and i'll pay you no worries that's what the samaritan did and he confronted the scribe with this poignant question and i love it the way jesus dealt with it when he was done with the parable he says okay which of the three <laughs> do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers i like it because jesus went on to close the deal sometimes we we are good at explaining things but but we don't close on the deal there, there are people in komatsu that that when you ask him hey can you come with me and explain to the customer oh no no i i'm forbidden to speak to customers yeah pretty much so if you're an engineer in the company they don't let you talk to customers because no nah, don't, don't let them talk they can really mess things up you need to get the guy who's the expert at closing <laughs> he doesn't know that much but he will be able to elicit some kind of decision right so jesus is coming to close with a pharisee I'm not just giving you a nice story and information. Tell me, which of the three? Let's commit now. Time to decide what you're going to do with what I'm telling you. The scribe knew he was caught. He says, oh boy. And because of his sectarian bigotry, and it shows here in ama an amazing display of hatred, of prejudice, of bigotry, a sin that makes me weep many times because I have shown it myself even though I should not. He says, the one who showed mercy. Do you notice he didn't say the Samaritan? Because a Jew would not take the name of a dog in his mind. He said, in his mouth. The one who showed mercy. And he came to sell plastic pizza to Papa John's and Jesus told him then you go do the same you don't want to talk to me you don't want to face reality and be honest with me do you want to be smart with me go do that and you'll have eternal life take a shot and Jesus walked and left them why sometimes we need to do that Proverbs says do not answer a foolish man according to his foolishness and right after it says, answer the foolish man according to his folly. So, but isn't that a contradiction? No. You don't follow the person in the folly they are trying to trap you in. You just bring them to reality and say it and leave. And Jesus was caught and dry with, his, with this individual. Now, conclusion. Conclusion is that this parable <laughs> doesn't teach that salvation is by works. No, salvation is not by works. But this parable does teach that salvation includes works. Talking about commitment in Cornerstone. Salvation is more, one of the pastors, I don't know who of the two said it, is more than church attendance. <laughs> salvation is more than listening to sermons online, reading books, um, feeding my mind. <laughs> salvation 
includes works. Christianity is not a mere contemplative, introspective walk. Let me tell you a secret is going to put me even farther away in the category of heretics I'm already am. But I'll say it. One more stripe for the tiger. Puritans are great. Puritans are great reading. You learn a lot of theology and you learn a lot of mind, soul, practical, conscious interaction by reading the Puritans because they were exhaustive. Exhaustive dealing with the human soul in light of the gospel and in light of scripture. So I don't want to lash on them or say anything negative. But here's a problem with reading the Puritans in a young mind, as I was introduced to them, that we don't understand their context. They came in the context when the Reformation, besides being the Reformation, was a political movement. And if you lived in this, in this canton of West Kendall, and if the canton clerk or, or head was Protestant, you had to be Protestant. And if you would not want to be Protestant, you had to move away to a Catholic one. Therefore, they knew that when their churches were packed, they had a great majority of unbelievers pretending to be believers. Therefore, they hammered and hammered, pointing people to the fact that you're not a Christian. So when you read the Puritans, the first part of the chapter or the book or whatever you're reading is just a hammering you with questioning your salvation. If you're a Christian of a scrupulous nature, you will leave the book halfway through really believing that you're an unbeliever. You have to finish it and get the comfort of the gospel and get the comfort of Christ and the sweetness of Christ, which they leave for the end. So that creates a lot of introspective Christians who are always wondering if they are saved always questioning their salvation. And as they question theirs, they question everybody else's salvation, by the way. Christianity is not a contemplative, introspective walk. Jesus says, so let your shine light before men. Your light shine before men. Why? That they may see your theology. No, your good works. That at that fire station, they say, why is Jared different? Or even better, Jared was a certain way before. After some months or years from now, I see something different about this guy. What's going on? Jared, tell me, what's going on with you? Huh? Why is Victor so different from other people? Yeah, he can be mean and he can be harsh, but there's something about him that is different. Victor, what is it about it? And it goes everywhere with any one of us. What is it about you? Because the light shines in good works. It shows. And to show, you have to mingle. You have to be there. You have to be present. You have to, <laughs> you have to shine. As we have opportunity, Galatians 6 says, let us do good to all people. All Especially the household of faith. Yes, if I only have five bucks and the homeless comes and Mike comes and they need both, they both need five bucks. 
Sorry, sorry, Mr. Homeless. I'll talk to my wife and see if she has another five for me, but hey, you're Mike, the ones I have are for you. Okay, especially for the household of faith, but do good to all men. As we have opportunity, we cannot save the planet, of course not. And these are things that appear to be godly, but that hinder Christians from engaging in good works and from engaging people where they are. Misguided separatism. Oh, I'm to be holy, and I will not mingle with those aliens and those heathens because I need to maintain my purity. Oh, really? And you expect them to come to Christ that way? Let me say something. I did it. You know how long? 37 years. 37 years I didn't talk to my childhood friends, to people who grew up with me, because I was meant to be separate and holy. And I was hoping, as I prayed for them, that they might see the light of my holiness. And to them I was just a crazy dude. Thankfully, thanks to WhatsApp, <laughs> I could mingle with them again. And now they ask for a sermon every Sunday. Oh, here's your good example. No, guys, I'm telling you about my bad example. Don't get this wrong way. 37 years being an idiot, separatist for being holy. That doesn't make anyone saved. Self-absorbed devotion. Self-absorbed devotion is self-absorbed depression. And by the way, I suffer from depression. You know that. I wake up almost every day at 3 a.m. trying to conciliate sleep. And between reading, praying, I go back to sleep at 5 or 6 and take another half an hour. You say, why are you depressed? No, I have no reason. Thankfully, God made me an engineer. And at least I can look around and say, there's no problem. Everything is fine. So it's just my craziness running. Lord, help me with the dopamine. And I go back to sleep. So I know what I'm talking about, even though I'm not an expert. You may need medication, and I'm not going to deal with that because I'm not a doctor. But I can tell you by experience, and I discovered my depression when I was 14, visiting a psychologist. So it's not that I haven't dealt with it. The more lazy you are and the more self-absorbed you are, the more depressed you become. You want to get out of your depression? Get out there and serve people and do things for people. And you will forget about yourself. You know why Proverbs says, the person who waters, himself will be watered. So there you are with your hose. Try just to put some water. You just have a little drip. And all of a sudden you feel this fresh thing that comes through your back. And God is watering you as you're watering people. Get out of yourself and serve and do and act and be light through good works. If you have medical problems, let a doctor talk to you. I don't have the ability to prescribe or recommend medical things. I'm not a doctor. I'm just telling you that's what the Bible teaches. Ministerial busyness. I know some of that too. There was a time in my life that I preached three or four times a week, I think five, sang in three musical groups, studied engineering, studied in seminary, and went to church. I can tell you my life was dry. I'm not saying this to tell you, oh, look, I was a, an example of service. 
No, I was an example that ministerial busyness is not devotion to Christ. You can be extremely busy building your kingdom, creating an identity around ministry and around what you do. It has nothing to do with doing good works to shine the light of the gospel on that person. Nothing to do with that. Don't fall for those traps. And I cannot finish <laughs> without saying the gospel runs underneath this parable. Somebody showed me a movie, uh, not a movie, a video. A friend of mine was calling me from Chile. He says, says, what is that behind you? It looked like a lake. He says, no, no, that's a river. That's a river. It was flat as a lake. He says, oh, the current is underneath. That must be dangerous then to get there. Well, the current of the gospel is underneath this parable. Why do I say that? Because a despised, rejected person showed compassion to an enemy who was afflicted by sin. The rescuer drew near to the person afflicted with compassion. The rescuer spent money time, resources to help this undeserving stranger who he didn't have any reason to help. The rescuer entrusted this wounded person to an innkeeper and told him, I'll be back. Who does that sound like? Of course, Jesus. The gospel runs underneath the parable. Because this is not an invitation to a moralistic call to good works. This is an invitation to that scribe to consider his bankruptcy. You're bankrupt. You cannot love God. You don't love your neighbor. You need a rescuer. You are the man who was robbed and left wounded on the road. And you need one whom you despise to come and rescue you. And save you from your wounds. And that is Jesus. And bankruptcy is not a repayment plan. When you're bankrupt, you file for bankruptcy. Well, I'm not recommending anybody to do that, by the way. I'm not a financial expert either. But what I'm saying is when you're bankrupt, you don't have anything to pay. You can't. You either go to jail or you just go under a bridge and become a homeless. Okay, that's what we are. So that, oh, well, we have some things and we can get into a repayment plan with God. In the morning, sometimes with tears, I tell the Lord, Lord, I wish. Then he says, no, I don't wish anything. I'm glad I cannot pay you back. Because you have the tendency, right, to say, I wish I could pay you back for all your mercies. The psalmist said it. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his mercies to me? And sometimes you want to say, Lord, I would like to. No. No, it's by grace. You are glorified when I tell you I'm bankrupt. I'm glad Jesus paid it. And that's the name of the game. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Because he poured out his blood on my behalf on that cross. May God add the blessing to his word. Father, mercy on us. Help us to see the beauty of the gospel. But help us to shine that beauty through our hands and feet and mouths and through our good works. Help us as a church to enter and engage this vision of commitment, to serve, to 
preach, to reach out. Help us, Father, we pray, not to build a kingdom, not to build a name for ourselves, no, for your glory, for your sake, for your name. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.